0: All right, so God's role in evil. We're going to talk over the next couple of weeks. I don't know if this is going to go just tonight. My plan is for us just to talk about this tonight. Uh, if this is your first night here, we're usually done by 8.15. Try to keep it pretty 8.15 sharp so that our kids who are in kids' groups can get out of here, uh, especially if there's a bedtime for uh, school nights or whatever. Um, So we're going to have a little extra time because normally we do some worship first, but we're just going to talk through some things. And uh, over the coming weeks, I wanted to talk about some topics that consistently come up, partly because of the country in which we live. I don't know that these topics would be a topic in another country, Um, but uh, we're going to talk about gay marriage. We're going to talk about the abortion debate. um, And specifically, we're going to kind of take two chunks on all those discussions. I want you to know what you need to know about what the Bible actually says. In some of these debates, it seems like they want to make it so complicated that you could never understand it unless you had a master's degree. But that is so against the reality of how the Bible was written. The Bible was specifically written in the common everyday language of the people so that people could understand. Let me just start by saying this. If God wanted to complicate it, it would be so complicated that you could never get it. You know what I mean? Well, God's intent was to explain it in a way that we could get it, at least to the capacity of our ability to get. So I'm not saying there aren't deeper truths and there aren't challenging things that we can't dig in deeper. But I am saying I want you to, I want you to look with me in the Word of God. What does the Bible actually say? And maybe you've never felt equipped. Maybe you just you just hear all these... Discussions, or you read all these little posts on a social media thing, and you're like, "Well, that sounds good. Well, that sounds good." I don't. Know. I want you to know what you think about what the Bible actually says. That's one chunk. The other chunk is I want you to think with me about what would it be to respond in a genuinely Christian manner to those things. Um, some of what we talked about on Sunday. I think that we lose track of our spiritual DNA. We are children of God, and so, in in that way, people tell people told me a couple like a, last, a month ago, at a, at a baseball game, that my son looks exactly like I did playing baseball because he was my coach, whatever thirty years ago or whatever. He was my coach, so now he's my son's coach, and he's like, "That is you," and so why? He's got my DNA, so he he. Runs like I did. He, he moves like because it's in him, right? Similarly, God says that you are born again into the family of God. And so you have spiritual DNA in you. We are called to let the, the light of Christ shine out through us. We are called to be his ambassadors and his testimony. If that is the case, shouldn't we... Act like God acts in those scenarios. So what would be a genuinely Christ-following, God-reflecting reaction to some of these issues? And I don't know that we've hit the mark on any of that stuff. Um, And I don't know that we'll hit the mark, but I want to ask the question. I want to put it in front of each one of you who has the Spirit of God in you to say, let's pursue this because it matters too much for us to be derailed or sidetracked. Uh, and some of this foolishness that goes on. All right, so this question tonight, I think, is a... Man, this is such a big question. Where is God when things go wrong? Where is God when people do unimaginably awful things, just ridiculously awful things? Right now, you've got girls who were kidnapped you know, overseas um, and forced to convert uh, under threat of death. You've got uh, a pregnant mother being sentenced to death because she won't convert... She converted to Christianity and married a Christian man, and, and in that country, that is illegal, and she's facing death. I think she's seven months pregnant. I, don't, I didn't pay that much attention to the, all the details of it, because the shock factor is just too much. But like, can you imagine that? The, this is a world in which we go, how can God let that happen? Where is God in that? Um, What I want to do just to start out here is think with you about the impact of getting this right. This is not theoretical at all. This is life changing. What you believe about where God is when bad stuff happens affects everything about your relationship with God. It is why it is the the fountain question of all doubt and challenge against Christianity. If you've ever tried to share your faith with someone resistant, 90% of the time this question comes up, well, I can't believe in a God who would let this happen or that happen or this other thing, right? Or what about this disaster and where was God when this happened? Or how could God let that person off, right? Why is it so... Think about this. Think out loud with me because, you, you know, you have to talk on Wednesday night. So think about with me, why is it that that is so central and so core of... A, what, why is it so meaningful? Why does that matter and is it so universal as the where we go in our heads what's the connection what's what's the reason for that why is that the hub why is that the question yeah why do why does that everybody want to know that or why is that always the challenge to faith yeah, so there is so much evil in our world it is omnipresent all the time every day i bet if you thought about it you probably could find something that was unfair unjust Um, and hurtful in your life every day. Every day, right? I pray to God that's not how you look at life, but because that's a miserable way to live. But the fact of the matter is there will always be stuff that's hurtful and unfair, and you got what you didn't deserve, or you got less than you thought you deserved, or whatever. Always. It's universal. All right? Why else? Why is it so central? Evil deserves blame somewhere right? Somebody's at fault. That is how we make sense out of it. I know where that came from, so I know who's at fault. Therefore, now I can process it and make sense. Good. To its core, that's what this is. If you as a believer or you as a non-believer do not have an answer to this question, you just leave it open. You can never be close to God because you never can know if you can trust him. If God is not trustworthy, and all of knowing and relating to God is about connecting to him through faith, which is a fancy word for trust, if I can't trust God, that's what it is, right? If he is not trustworthy, then is He? A, is he what kind of God is he? Who is he? What's he like? How could I relate to somebody if I'm defending myself from him, if I'm trying to like shield myself from, hide myself? if I can't trust him. So that's, when you get down to the core of it, it affects every fabric of your life. And I would say to you, it's why it comes up in every person, it's why it comes up in every believer's experience. When bad stuff happens, this is kind of the the way the argument is cast. Either God cares, and because he cares, he removes evil, or God either doesn't exist, or is an uncaring God right i mean that 's kind of your those are your two choices, which one do you want to believe and that seems to be the only way that the human mind can actually process this disparity so let 's take a look at it um, what do i want to what I want to show you? I just want to show you four points, and hopefully you can hang your hat on a couple of these in in a way that it makes sense i 'm not going to tell you that. I've got the perfect explanation, and this is exactly the truth, because I don't know that we can get to exactly the truth. I don't know that we can digest exactly the truth. But I will tell you that I believe what I'm going to share with you tonight is eminently biblical, like everything about it is from the Bible, is taught, is a major theme in the Word of God, and it's something you can hang your hat on, is a way that you can approach this topic so that you can sort through the mess. I know people who take one part of this and hang their hat on it, and by, but by hanging your hat on just one part of this, you really wind up with a very skewed view of God, and after a few questions, you wind up very stuck. What, I, what I'm hoping is that if we put all this together, it can really help us get some traction about who God is. All right, first thing I want you to see is that God is sovereign. When I say the word sovereign to you, what does that mean to you? God is sovereign. Holy, Okay. God is in control, ruling, the word reign and sovereign, right? Reign, he reigns, he rules, he's in control. How much control does sovereign include? All of it. God is completely in control. Okay? That is the concept of God is sovereign. And this is the rub when somebody says, You know, how could God let this happen? It starts at this concept that the Bible teaches over and over and over again. It says in the beginning, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, God created the heaven and the earth. He is the one who made this this way, right? He's the one who put stars and sands and the sea and the grass and the animals and all. God created this system like this. So He is the designer of it. And as the God who is in charge of it all, we feel only justified in holding Him. Responsible, okay? Um, I wrote on, on the notes, Isaiah 46.10, it says this, um, and it's God speaking. I know the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. And I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. All right, so in Isaiah, God says what about himself? What, what can we take out of that verse? That he what? All-knowing. I know the end from the beginning. I know from ancient times all the way through what hasn't even happened yet. I know it all. So God is all-knowing. That presents a problem for evil, doesn't it? Because God is not presenting himself as someone who is surprised when someone gets murdered or or raped or, you know, some catastrophe happens. God isn't surprised by it because he knows the end from the beginning. Okay? Okay? Well, if he if he knew about it, maybe he just couldn't do anything about it. What else does Isaiah tell us? He does exactly what pleases him, which means there's no one who can stop him. There's no one. He is above everyone else in his ability and his power. God is sovereign. He rules. I think I put Psalm 60, verse 1, and 1 to 3, talking about a cry out to God. There are other verses that are in the, in the Word of God that talk about the Lord reigns, right? He rules on high. There are plenty and plenty of passages, and I, I didn't want to just stuff this full of lots and lots of jumping around in the Bible, but I think, hopefully, all of you understand this concept that God is God, we, we don't get a vote, God doesn't come down to churches and say, now, do you vote that I'm God? You know, it doesn't matter if you vote whether he's God or not. He's God because he is. It's like we don't get together at my house and say, How many of you want me to be dad? You can, you can vote me out if you want, but guess what? I'm still dad. It doesn't matter what you vote. You don't have the power to unseat me because this is something beyond your ability to control. Similarly with, us, with God, with us. We do not have a say. I've had people say before, well, I don't know that I can, I can believe in a God like that. And I said, especially if it comes at me smart alky then it stirs up something in me that I don't know it's a spiritual gift or <laughs> I don't know what it is. But I'll be like, it doesn't really matter if you believe in him. He's still God. And you're still gonna answer to him. And the excuse of I chose to not believe in you will do you no good. Because he's God. That's how God is, okay? That's just the way it is. There isn't any option to him. He's God. So we see that he is all-powerful. His plans are unresistible. He is all-knowing. He holds all things together, Colossians 1. Everything is held together in his hand. By him all things were created and all things continue to exist. Suggesting Um, theologically, that if God decided to stop holding things together, they would be gone that fast. How is that possible? Well, if you get into subatomic physics, where you talk about strong force, weak force, what you find is that scientists are amazed at what holds the nucleus of an atom together. It is That's what they call the strong force. And we're talking about atomic particles. We're talking about particles that you can't even see, like tiny, tiny particles. But they're uh, protons and neutrons clumped together in the nucleus of an atom. Now, just in simple life, these are charged positively. When you take a positive charge and put it up against a positive charge, what does that do? Except in an atom... The, the building block of all creation, it doesn't. And there's this thing called the strong force that they can't tell you why it's there. It's not like gravity where they can explain it in proportionality. They can measure it. They can tell you it's the strongest force that exists in the universe, the strong force that holds the protons of an atom together. But they can't tell you why. By him, all things consist. Okay? So God is the creator and the sustainer. And so that, that reality brings about human logic. God could do something about the bad stuff that happens in my life. If you're somebody who was victimized, and I've spoken to people who've been victimized before, assaulted or, or betrayed or whatever. And it's like, God, where were you? You have the power and you know about it and you say you care about me. So why didn't you do that? Why didn't you step in and stop that? It seems like anyone who loved me would protect me, right? I've heard that before. The injustice for us, humanly speaking, is unbearable and unimaginable. And so the only thing we can do is ache in our heart towards God. And so you find that in the Psalms. You find that throughout the Psalms, right? And I wrote down one here, uh, Psalm uh, number 60 verses 1 to 3, it's just one of many times where that reality turns into a cry from the heart of David to God. It says this, You have rejected us, O God, and burst forth upon us. You have been angry. Now restore us. You have shaken the land and torn it open. Mend its fractures, for it is cracking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. What's he talking about there? He's talking about God's punishment. The wine is, is the bowl of wrath. You know, when, when we sing about the grapes of wrath, that's, that's the picture right there, is the picture of God's wrath. The wine, the strong wine, and it's so strong that it, it's staggering how painful this experience is. And then David cries out to God and says, God, what are you doing? You're killing us. You're punishing us. You're pouring out your wrath on us. You don't care about us. It is a normal human response to the bad stuff that happens in the world. All right, so does that make sense? Everybody with me on that? Any questions about God is sovereign? If I have people who stop there, that is an unsatisfying explanation for the evil that happens in the world. Wouldn't you say? I've had people say, well, God's sovereign. You can't question him. Doesn't matter. He's got. He's sovereign. I don't understand his ways, but he does, so he's sovereign. That's the end of the story. And I would have to accept it if that's the only thing the Bible taught. But it's not. The Bible teaches more. And I think the Bible gives us a way of approaching this. Certainly God is sovereign. But the second thing I want you to see is that God made a sovereign choice. No one forced him to do it, but he did this thing. And what he did is he said, I'm going to give mankind independence. I'm going to give mankind the ability to make choices. And I am not going to stop them. I mean, go all the way back again to the beginning. He created the world. The world was in his hands. The sun rose when he set. The stars appeared when he said. He was in charge. Until he created man and breathed into him the breath of life. And then what God did is he said, Now I've given you this whole garden. All these trees you can eat of which is actually the first thing he said, you can eat of all these trees. He didn't say, don't eat that tree. He said, you can eat of all these trees. Then he said, there's one tree not to eat of, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what is he doing there? He's handing them responsibility and the choice. You're going to choose what to do with this opportunity. Are you going to enjoy the creation that I've made for you? Enjoy the fellowship that we have together? Are you going to enjoy that? Or are you going to go pursue what I told you not to? Are you going to step across that line and that boundary? What are you going to do with that? And in that moment, God endowed on mankind the ability to make choices and, this is important, decided not to step in when they were going to make the wrong choice. Did God know Adam and Eve were going to go grab the wrong fruit? Did he stop them? Think about it. Is it because he didn't know? He was like busy cleaning out, you know, the laundry room or something. Then he came back like, oh no, you've eaten the tree. Is that what it was? No, God knew what they were doing. But God gave them a choice and let them walk that choice out. So he gave them free will. And then mankind is the one who chose to do what was wrong. Now what's the fallout of that choice? Sin. Death? Yeah, good question. It's clear that He gave us free will, and it's clear that He knew we were going to mess it up because it talks about the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world in Revelation. So God already had this plan of redemption before creation ever happened. He knew we were going to mess it up. But He gave us free will. He gave us free will. Any idea why? Why? Okay, love. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I saw a light bulb, yes, I did. <laughs> and By the way, anybody who answers a question from now on, that is the correct way to answer. <laughs> that is the correct way. Um, if... You knew that you could get this—the you know, your spouse, the love of your life, whatever, to love you by making them love you, by taking away their will and making it that they had no choice but to love you. Would that take something away from your relationship, like everything? Because it's no longer love. Love is a choice that we make. And God created us to be in relationship with Him. As a matter of fact, we are never, ever satisfied in our soul unless we are in a relationship with Him. And that relationship is love. And in order for that to be available, in order for that to be a possibility, we had to have the ability to choose Him or to not choose Him. And God decided, nobody made him, it was his sovereign choice to say, I'm going to give you that choice because I want the opportunity for people to love me like I love them. God chose to love us. That's why he said he made us in his image. He didn't make a dog in his image or a tree in his image. Or He made us in his image, right? And that's that opportunity for us to choose to love him. But that is only a legitimate choice if we can also choose to not love him, right? Makes sense. So, what comes out of this choice? Essentially, everything we hate about this life: selfishness, self-centeredness, pain, hurt, betrayal, death, saying goodbye, people that try hard but mess up, people that don't try to uh, don't try to do the right thing. They try to stab you. Like all of that came from what? From our choice to sin. Does it affect you when other people choose to sin? And God, when he gave us a choice, said, what was he going to do? He was going to not stop people from making bad choices, right? So one of the explanations for why bad things happen in this world is because God created a perfect world Man decided to reject him and to go our own way. And what we see in this world, in terms of death and destruction and devastation and pain, is all a fruit of man's choice that broke God's heart. God did not set man up. I mean, think about it. He gave them one tree that you can't eat, and He gave them a whole garden prepared by God that you could eat. Where's He stacking the odds? You know what I mean? He's really inviting them to a relationship with him. And that's what he wanted. And when we turned our back on him, broke his heart. Just like if your children were to turn, turn their back on your love, it would break your heart. Can you imagine? So that's that's the experience of God. So sometimes God gets blamed because what he did is he gave man a choice. Man blew it with the choice. And then we turn on and say, God, why'd you do that? Why didn't you stop us from blowing it? I've had... Kids do that to me before. Have you? Well, why didn't you stop me? Oh, like that's what you wanted back then, right? You wanted me to stop you, right? I think I could have blown myself up and you wouldn't have stopped. I was over here going, don't go that way, don't go that way, don't go that way. But you went that way, right? So that's kind of what we do. We make the choice. Then we turn around to God and go, why did you do that to me? And God goes, I didn't do it to you. You did it to me. I love you. I only ever do good towards you. And then you chose to feed this back to me. You chose to push me away and go on your own, live selfishly, live like I'm a liar, live like I'm not trustworthy. That's what you chose to do to me. And then you turn around and blame me for what you chose to do. Yeah. Um, Well, but no, but man did. Uh, First of all, man did it in that death became a possibility and creation was inevitably altered by man's fall, number one. And number two, the greatest catastrophic event in the history of the earth has changed the way creation operates, which is the flood. And I believe, as you read Genesis, there was no rain before the flood. The earth operated in a very harmonious way. And what caused the flood? Mankind turned their back on God, right? In other words, these are fruits of our choices, all the way even to the stuff like the weather and the the physical makeup of the world. Earthquakes are caused because the, the plates of the world are not stabilized, which I believe from what I've learned is probably mostly a result of the catastrophic nature of the flood and the shifting of tectonic plates and things like that. So that's to me all fallout of what we chose some of that is yeah some of that's choice i think bob's talking about on the grander scale you know surprise catastrophic events katrina when when it showed up and people were like this is way worse than we thought and you know i guess what true true i guess what i'm suggesting to you from from what i see while well, that's very valid what i'm suggesting is i don't think any of that would even happen if it weren't for the fall of man and the flood which really dynamically changed the way the world operates. Yes. So let's back up. Let's dig into this again. What happens when people choose to do the wrong thing? Does their sin affect you? Does God stop them from sinning? That's why. It's not God's fault, but God gave a legitimate free choice to people, and people choose what they want to do with it, and then that fallout, echoes out into our world and pain multiplies and echoes yeah and in the new testament as we go through the book of john does does jesus keep giving them the choice does he keep putting the truth out in front of them it wasn't for a lack of information or a lack of opportunity or even lack of seeing It was because they didn't want it that's why they turned their back on it is that the norm No. no first of all it's not the norm Second off, he didn't stop those men from making that choice. He diverted some of the consequence of that choice for his glory. But they still got thrown into the fiery furnace. Daniel still got thrown into the lion's den. He didn't stop them from the choice that they had, right? Sometimes he can... I think it's the consequences sometimes that we get wrapped up in. But think about this. Is there examples in the Word of God where people who were completely innocent suffered? Like what? Stephen, Job jesus so what we have to do is we have to say there's a bigger picture we're going to look at what how we can look at that in a minute but it is the cause of it is people make evil choices whether on purpose or not i'm not saying everybody tries to make evil choices you might have had lousy parents but they were trying to be good parents they just didn't know any better. They, they got bad upbringing or whatever, or they're still reacting to something. Like they were trying. It's not always that they're just wicked people. Sometimes it's that they just poured out evil and they, they couldn't have done anything else. And so you were the recipient of all that. And now you've got to deal with that. You didn't deserve it. You know, I talk a lot of times to people about mourning the loss of what you should have had. What, you, what your heart ached for because God put that desire in your heart and it didn't happen. And it wasn't your fault, it just didn't happen, you know? And what do we do with that? Well, if I start, I guess what I'm suggesting here is, if I start my reaction by that, by saying, now God, I know you could have stepped in, but you didn't, why not? I am immediately in a hopeless path. Because if God is to blame for it, then God can't be the answer to it. And I've got nowhere else to turn. Right? So what I'm trying to do here is say, can we at least identify that the pains and the wickednesses and the injustices come in a large way, in a macroscopic way from the sin of mankind and in many times in the small way from the sin of a person or a group of people who chose to do the wrong thing or somehow wound up doing the wrong thing. Does that make sense? That to me, uh, Romans 5.12, death came to us by sin. One man sinned into the world and death came by sin. In other words, we would not die unless sin came into the world. Think about that. Why are funerals so hard? We weren't made to do this. Why is your heart ache for no more goodbyes? We weren't created for this goodbye stuff. We weren't created for get old and break down and get weary and and die and say goodbye or be taken suddenly out. We weren't made for this. We were made to be in fellowship with God forever. That's what we were made for. That's why it feels wrong. Because it is wrong. Because death came from sin. Right? Isn't it cool that God took that fallout, that ultimate fallout of sin... And used it as the tool to redeem all of that. Death became not only the problem and the punishment, but the answer for our lives. Pretty cool stuff. James 1, 13-15 talks about God is not behind our sin. God does not tempt us with evil. If we're tempted, we are drawn away by our own desires. And it tells us every time we give in to our desires, it produces sin. And sin, when it's fully formed, gives birth to death. The word is destruction. And I think we could probably take the next 15 minutes and talk about the destruction that comes when I choose sin. In my life, in the lives of others, in my my circumstance, my finances, my relationships, my relationship with God, like devastation every which way because of my choice to sin. Ezekiel 18.23, I think, is a great verse that talks about God's perspective on this. He says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? God says, am I happy when the wicked die? Am I filled with joy that they have died? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their, w- their ways and live? In other words, what's God up in heaven rooting for? Repentance. And who, it, 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 in God's sovereignty, he's chosen to live in his sovereignty by giving us a choice. And so you see God, not because he couldn't have done it a different way, but because he chose to do it this way, saying, come on, choose to live, turn, turn to me. Choose. He's appealing, right? That's why Paul says we go out and we make God's appeal for him. It's not that God couldn't force us, but he's chosen not to. And so when we turn our back on him, it isn't God, it's us. So God chose to give man the choice, and he does not take that away. He does not stop it. There are times when God cuts off a process just because of God's purpose and God's plan. And we see that in things like Karen's talking about with Daniel Lyons that cuts off a process. But God does not stop people from choosing wrong. And most of the time, if virtually all the time, that has fallout beyond their own life into the lives of people around them. And that is the way this works spiritually. It's why this world is so lost, so dark, and so filled with hurt and pain. People choose to do evil and chose to do evil, and it has fallout. The evil in our world is primarily a result of what mankind collectively has done with God's gift of choice. Now, let me just say two other things that we've got to keep straight in our heads as, as we look at this. So, first of all, God is sovereign, God is in charge, no one made him do anything. God has all power, all knowledge, absolutely. But secondly, we see from the very get-go and really throughout all of Scripture that God has chosen to give a choice, the choice to us about what we will do with our lives. And God does not interfere with that choice. And while that is, it is difficult sometimes to wrap your head around. Have you ever prayed for somebody to receive Jesus? Lord, please, please get them, right? There's a difficulty in that prayer. And, I, and I'm not saying we got to get our heads all twisted up. This just illustrates how deep this is. There's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, will you please, please help them see you? And, and I'm praying that they would come to receive you. I, I, that's a great prayer. But God's up in heaven going, I know. That's what I want. I mean, I died for them, right? Don't you get it? I want that too. Like in other words, what I'm saying is God legitimately gives people a choice. There is a, there is a doctrine in the word of God called election. And, and it can get you all twisted up in your head in terms of, well, I didn't have a choice. God, and, and that technically is also true, which is hard to explain because God's a lot bigger than my simple explanation. But for the sake of getting my head around this, I have to approach it this direction. If I approach it from that direction, I am hopelessly lost. So I can only approach it from this direction, that God gives us that choice, and He does, and I make a choice with that. And so if I'm praying, what I'm praying a lot of times is not for the result, I'm praying for the process. I'm praying for God to continue to persist in reaching to that person, in knocking on their the heart's door, in doing everything and anything to be the most convincing possible argument to them, to make it as clear as He can with them, Right? That's what I'm really praying. God, don't give up on them. I'm not giving up on them. Stay after them. You know them better than anybody in this world. So make it so it's so plainly obvious to them that it's, it just there's just no turning away from it. Make it so that it's just so appealing to them that it, it's almost irresistible. God, would you go get them? with every, Pour everything you got after them. Get them. Just go get them. And then God's like, yeah, let's do that. Right? But God is not forcing people to get saved. He's not making that choice for them. Does that make sense? I know. We're in, I said we're in the deep end, so a little bit of deep stuff. Two other things that bring some clarity to this about whether God is responsible for the evil in the world. One is that God is the judge. I put down here Psalm 96, 13, a little excerpt from that verse. He comes to judge the world. or Yeah, he comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world. Um, what Psalm 96 includes is a theme throughout scripture that there is a day of reckoning and who will be the one judging everyone on that day of reckoning god god is the judge and so i say this to people sometimes if someone really hurt you and wounded you and did wrong to you god is the judge he didn't miss it and he is just so that will be paid back exactly exactly how it needs to be paid back. In other words, if that person lives in their sin and dies in their sin, God will judge. As we saw before, God's not going to be like jumping up and down for joy about the fact that these people have chosen judgment instead of salvation. I mean, he died for salvation, but he is just and he will judge. And so let's say, you know, greatest criminals of all time, whatever, you know, let's say Hitler doesn't repent, doesn't come to know Christ, will God pay him back for what he did? Absolutely, he will. And there is even terminology in Jesus' discussion about how punishment in eternity will be commensurate to what you did on earth. Jesus says, it will be worse in the day of judgment for you than for Sodom and Gomorrah or for Tyre and Sidon, because if the works that were done here were done there, they would have repented. Like, in other words, there seems to be some sense that God will measure out punishment according to the works that were done in eternity. It's a pretty powerful thought that God will measure out punishment justly. Now, I guess the twist in that is, um, what if that person gets saved, right? Then they don't get punished. Right, exactly, just like you didn't get punished, right? Like, in other words, why would I hold it against them that Jesus paid for them? I wouldn't hold it against me, would I? I mean, I know that their sin had fallout in your life. Your sins probably had fallout in other people's lives. If Jesus paid it all for you and Jesus paid it all for them, I think that would be cause for rejoicing, not cause for bitterness. And if it if you get stuck in bitterness because someone might get saved and be forgiven, I understand that human emotion, but you've got to like work past that to the place where you understand the bigger purpose of redemption in it. Right? Maybe it shows you, it shines a light on the fact that you're holding on to some bitterness that you need to release. You need to let go of. It. It's still in control of you. It's still coloring how you see the world and your life and all that stuff, and you need to let that go because forgiveness will eventually take you to the point where your hope is that that person who wronged you will find forgiveness themselves in Jesus Christ eventually. Yes, deep in. Well, all sin... Is sin. There isn't like um, this is such a horrible sin and this is such a good sin in that way, but there is fallout. There is accountability to fallout here, here on earth, and suggestedly in eternity. And and every time Jesus says that, he talks about their willful resistance of truth. In other words, almost like how hard God came after them, and they still rejected it. It's almost like that kind of a thing. In other words, that that theoretical hypothetical person out in the wilderness that never heard. Who rejected general revelation versus one of these Pharisees who stood in the temples with him every day. That seems to be more the measure. It's a very hazy teaching in the Word of God, but there does seem to be justice. I guess what I would say is the strong teaching of the Word of God is that Jesus will be a just judge. He will be exactly right in what he does. And so, in my limited understanding of how this awful thing that was done to me, I feel like it's this big thing. They won't slip away. There will be justice done on them. God is leaving space for mercy so that they could maybe come to repentance. But if they do not, there is justice stored up for them. It may be that you, in your mind, have an outsized proportion of what was done to you compared to what was done to other people. And so you think this person is really, really bad and they deserve a lot. So, but God is just and God knows exactly the right amount. So they won't miss any of the punishment that they are owed if they choose to you know, absorb it themselves instead of receiving the gift of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. There's, there is some suggestion like that in the Word of God. Even like uh, Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount. If, if you hurt one of these little innocent ones, it would be better that a millstone were tied around your neck. Like, there is some of this better stuff. And, and how much of that is rhetorical? How much of that is a simple explanation of an eternal truth? I, I can't really... It doesn't ever go into a deep explanation of it. But the reality is that there is hope for those who have been deeply wronged to know that God is just, God is on their side, and God is keeping account. That restores credibility and trustworthiness to God because it's a biblical truth and because it's meaningful when you've been wounded and you feel like you were a helpless victim and no one was there for you. No, God's there and He knows and He's just. If God were responsible for it in any way, if God were responsible in His sovereignty in any way for that evil, whether He was responsible because He didn't step in or responsible because uh, he, He chose to make it happen or whatever, then He could not be just as a judge. Even in our world, we have the conflict of interest thing where if I was the one doing it, I can't also be the judge on the case, right? If I'm on trial, I can't be the judge too, right? That doesn't work right. Well, in... Eternity, God is the judge, which means, by definition, he cannot be involved in the crimes of the case. And So when God judges, uh, that's one of those illustrations. We talk about God allowing evil, and that's the story you know about of Job. Right? You know about the story of Job? Somebody tell me how God allowed evil in the book of Job. How, did that, how does that go? Right, so there is this picture of Satan accusing Job, and asking to bring pain into Job's life, and God says, "Okay," and sets a limit. First time is, you can do whatever you want around him, but you can't touch him, right? So God sets a limit on Satan. So there, you go. Well, now God's allowing. He's setting limits. He's, what's God doing? God is in in the book of Job. God is bringing. Something, something's happening there that's bigger than our economy. Our economy goes like this. If it's painful and I didn't deserve it, what's going on here? God, do you hate me? That's kind of our, you must hate me. It must be, I must be an evil, wicked person and not know it for you to bring bad into my life. The book of Job teaches us that God will take awful, undeserved things that come into our lives. I don't, we kind of gloss over how bad it was for Job, but it was pretty bad, wouldn't you say? Imagine losing all your kids, seven of your kids in one day and everything you owned on top of that. That's a pretty devastated life. And then Satan had to go back to God and say, well, he hasn't cursed you yet. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Well, okay, now you can make him suffer like no one on earth has ever suffered. Okay. He flicks him with these boils and Job is in agony and still He doesn't turn his back on God. So there's something else at play here. And and Job's, like, approach to that happening in his life is an example to us that says, I have to believe that there is more at play and more at stake than just my comfort and what I think I deserve. Otherwise, why would anyone lay down their life for anything? I mean, we, like, people who die in in battle, preserving our freedom, we applaud them as heroes, right? They're just amazing, wonderful people. Well, if I'm going to take that standard that I often use with God, that suffering or pain or loss without being deserved is unimaginably wicked, and how can that happen? Then I should look at these people as fools for laying down their life for freedom. Because there is no greater cause than my life and my comfort, right? Oh, wait a minute, there is. And I know it when I talk about freedom in America, but I don't sometimes recognize it when I'm talking about spiritual realities. And that's, that's the rub there, is that sometimes we look at it in too small of a view um, when we look at it. And so the story of Job, God sets these limits and says, you can't do any more. And there is some suggestion in that, that God cares for us and knows our limit, that how much would be good versus how much would be destructive. How much would do good Versus how much would not do good. And God sets a limit on it. All right, last thing I want to see before we run out of time. God is judge. And then fourthly, God is redeemer. All right, so, and this, man, you can't lose sight of this. This is really the whole crux of it, okay? God doesn't stop men from doing wicked things. God will judge them eventually, but that could be hollow comfort to you if you're broken and shattered from somebody else's wickedness. God does not step in and stop them. God gives them a legitimate choice. They choose to do wicked, evil things. It has an impact on your life. Here's the truth from the word of God that is so amazing and incredible. Here's the transforming truth of this whole argument. God is not just judge. He's not just sovereign. And he didn't just give us a choice. He is redeemer. And what that means is this. No matter how bad the stuff that comes into your life, God will take every bit of it and turn it into unimaginable good if you'll put it in his hands. That's incredible. That's like speechless in front of him. Can you even think through that? The thing that makes us sometimes shake our fists at God, God doesn't say, well, good luck with that. Hope that works out for you. I didn't have anything to do with that. Good luck with that. Here's what God says. I'm going to rush in. I'm going to walk with you through this. I'm going to hold you in it. I'm going to speak to you in it. If you will give it to me, I will heal you from that wound that was given to you unfairly, unjustly. And I will actually transform it into a blessing in your life, to something positive and good and life-giving. Something purposeful and filled with meaning. I'm not just going to erase it and make pretend it never happened. I'm going to take the deepest wound of your life and turn it into the greatest blessing of your life because that's the kind of redeemer that I am. The biggest betrayal, the biggest pain, the hardest course, the roughest seas. I'm going to take that very thing. And in the middle of that, you'll know that I am with you in a way that you've never known before. You're going to learn about me and my presence and my love and my care for you and my concern. And how much does that cost you? Well, it's going to cost you some physical comfort. But it's going to reward you eternally. Powerful stuff. But if I start with, how did you let this happen to me, God? Then I'm not going where I need to go. The only one who can redeem those Injustices. the only one who can pick up the broken pieces of your soul psalm 23 he restores my soul the only one who can do that is god so do you see why the enemy comes and whispers in your ear god can't care about you if he let this happen to you how can you trust a god who would let that happen because if i can't trust god now i'm stuck with all these broken pieces and there's nothing i can do with them because i can't fix it so i just got to kind of like pretend that they're not broken stay clear of people who might hurt me again. Like, I'm so lost and hopeless because I've already given up on the answer. That's why this accusation comes up in our world and in our lives. If you are not settled on this, you are vulnerable to this attack from the enemy to live with doubt in your mind about the goodness of God for you, about His redeeming power in your life. And your birthright as a child of God is to take all of your sorrows and let Him turn them to joy take all of your brokenness and find tenderness and gentleness and healing in his hands. That's the birthright from the promise of God. And we go out so mealy-mouthed as Christians, like, I don't know why this happened. And we say these trite little things that don't mean anything to anybody. And it gets me irritated sometimes because we do injustice to the name and the reputation and the testimony of God because we can't stand up for him. And say, my God didn't do that. That evil person did that. Now God will rush in there and Stand alongside that little innocent one and put his arms around them and bring healing if they'll put it in his hands. God cares about that and God is brokenhearted. When Lazarus died, Jesus didn't go, what's your problem? I'm about to raise him to life. Get over it. What did he do? He broke down and cried because he feels our pain. And it's not nothing to him. He loves us like that. He doesn't dismiss us. He doesn't say, well, that shouldn't bother you that much. Can't you see the bigger picture? Sometimes we're so flippant in church. The pain is real and God cares about that pain. And God says, I'm the only one who can come and heal it. But we don't do a great job at representing him like that. So we talk about Romans eight twenty eight: All things work together for good to those, who are, to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Um, sometimes we use that verse to say all things work together for my good which is a little (laughs) self-centered and it's not what the verse actually says It's it's definitely an extended interpretation of that verse in other words what is good by its very nature is good for me but if I'm looking for my good in it I may not be able to see it but God can take all things and work them together for good people who died as martyrs and gave their life as martyrs, did he do that for their good? Or did he do that for good? You know what I mean? Like, it, w- it would be really difficult to have that conversation with someone who is literally being burnt alive. Well, this is good. going didn't work out good for you. Like, that. this is ridiculous, right? But it worked for good. All things worked for good. And if they could understand, if they, if they're they could engage that spirit side of them that says, what I really want is good, then I would lay my life down for this cause. We are dying as a church or as a a community of churches for the lack of people who are willing to lay down their life for the cause. We want God to just fill up our life with the cause of me. Fix my this and give me that and make sure this happens and that doesn't happen and whatever. We're, We're dying for God to fix us all up. But man, oh man, Are we in it for the good? Do we see enough purpose and meaning and eternal capacity for what God has for the kingdom of God in my life that I would give up anything and everything for his cause? We make it too soft and too easy. It's why a lot, I mean, this this church is blessed with men who love God and are willing to serve. But a lot of churches, men are absent because church is not about any challenge. It's about all feelings and mushy-gushy and whatever. But man, this is like rise up, church, rise up, because our God is in it for good. Um, I think about Genesis fifty, where Joseph, we went through in our study of the Book of Genesis, the injustice done to Joseph, Joseph time and time again. Sometimes on purpose. Potiphar's wife lied about him on purpose. She was mad because he wouldn't come sleep with her, so she said he tried to rape me. Now Potiphar, who actually liked Joseph, he got tricked. And he threw him in prison, but he didn't know any better. He just was a human, subject to the limitations of humanity. And he said, well, you got to go to jail because you tried to rape my wife. Jo- Joseph suffered at the hands of people's humanity and at the hands of people's willful wickedness. Pharaoh calls up uh, these men, you know, the, 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 the baker and the, the cupbearer, and, the, and the, you know, hey, remember me when you see Pharaoh. Yeah, I will remember you. And then forget you for three years. Just human, just forgot him for three years. Joseph suffered three more years in prison because somebody forgot, right? So what does Joseph do at the end of his life when his brothers come back and the dad has died and they're kind of like, oh no, now it's going to come back to haunt us. And they come in kneeling. He says in Genesis 50, 20, don't be afraid, don't be disturbed. You meant it for evil. It's a powerful word. You decided and chose and acted in a wicked manner towards me, trying to destroy me, trying to hurt me, trying to wipe me off the face of this earth. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. To the saving of much people. Same word. And that is the impossible paradox for us to get our heads around. How his brothers could have meant it and at the exact same time, God could have meant it. It's almost as though there's these overlays and both people are acting independent of one another. It creates the same action, but the purpose of one is thwarted by the purpose of Almighty God. And Joseph says, I'm not worried about what you chose to do or your motivations or what you, were, what you said or did or what that fallout was in my life. I know this. I put it in God's hands and what God meant to do with it was far greater and far much more worth it than anything you tried to do to me. So I'm not going to hold it against you because I trusted it to God. Powerful verse. And a powerful truth for us to live in. When wicked happens, when bad happens, when pain shows up in our lives... The powerful opportunity that you and I have is to live by faith in a God who is sovereign, who gave choice to man, and man has blown it, and you and I have blown it over and over again. But God will judge, so I don't have to worry about getting people back. And God will redeem. If I let him, God will redeem. So I hope that's something that can get us on track as we share God with others. Like I said, storing up justice for someone doesn't mean he hates them. That means he's, he's accepting their choice to face judgment on their own. Absolutely. I think, you know, in prison, a lot of people feel like, and and in lots of areas, they feel like they are broken beyond repair, right? And I think the story of Tamar that we went through, Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38, I don't know if you remember that story. Tamar was a prostitute, or she dressed up like one. She was someone who was rejected by several men, felt like a total loser, abandoned by her family, and then... Basically prostituted herself out to her father-in-law. I mean, talk about feeling worthless and broken beyond repair. Talk about somebody who's given up hope on themselves, right? And what did God do with her? The child born to her, Perez, was the child, the son of Judah, through whom Jesus came. God used that wicked act and that girl's sense of being alone and abandoned and broken and bruised and helpless and hopeless And he said, you know what I'm going to do with you? I'm going to make you the one through whom Jesus comes, the Messiah, the Savior. Judah already had children. Two of them died because of their wickedness. The other one, whatever, it was through that union that God brought the Messiah. Talk about God redeeming those who seem hopelessly broken those who seem hopelessly lost. If you have felt wounded beyond repair, if you have felt broken, if you felt marked, if you felt like you're too far gone for God to do anything with your life, remember the story of Tamar. Powerful story of redemption. God can do more than we can ask or imagine. Good.